going to do something I very rarely do, and that is I'm uh, changing what I'm preaching on today to Romans chapter 7. I made, I didn't just decide a minute ago. I changed it midweek, but we had already uh, prepared the bulletin in the middle of the week. And then I, I realized uh, that with the election, the presidential election, other two Sundays away, that I have uh, not fulfilled my uh, responsibility of at least teaching from the premier passage on the, in the Bible about the role of the state, uh, the role of government, and that is Romans 7. There are certain premier passages in the Bible. If you want to know about love, you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to know about the Lord's Supper, you turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And if you want to know about the relationship of the church and the state, you turn to Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. So that is what I wanted us to do today. So assuming you're there on page 943, hear God's word. I'll read verses 1 to, uh, did I say 7? Romans 13, sorry. Romans 13, 1 to 7, 948. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, with the psalmist, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Relationships between church and state have been notoriously controversial through all of Christian history. Uh, there are four main models of the relationship of the church and state. These are not the models of government. These are models of how the church relates to government. And these are not in order of importance, but one model, one of the four models, is called statism or Rastianism. And that is that the state controls the church. This has occurred many times through centuries. We see that in some of the extreme communist countries where the state controls the church. So that's statism. The second model is a theocracy, theocracy, and that is that the church controls the state. The state is the instrument which is used by the church to commend and even coerce people to respond to God's message. Hopefully you will dismiss this pretty quickly. Theocracy is what we find in several Muslim countries. Then we have the Constantine model. The compromise in this model is between the state so that the state favors the church and the church accommodates to the state in order to retain the state's favor. 
Some describe this as a codependent relationship between the church and the state. The church, the state does favors for the church, and the church in response does favors for the state. And so the goal in that model is to maintain a mutually beneficial relationship. But the fourth model is what I think is, my opinion, is what is taught in this passage, and that is what you'd call a partnership. And that is that the church and the state recognize and encourage each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. So the church and the state speak to each other. The state has valid interests that benefit the church, and the church is free to speak to the state. This seems, as I mentioned, in my opinion, to fit best with what's here in Romans 13. It's clear from the Bible that the church and the state have different roles. They deal with different spheres. And as Christians, we have duties both to God and to the state. And the key passage for this is already been alluded to when Bobby Newman gave his testimony, and that is when some Pharisees who were represented the church side of things and some Herodians who represented the state side of things, they got together and they came to Jesus in Mark chapter 12, and they wanted to trick him up. They wanted to trap him with a question. So they asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And in response, he asked for a coin that they had, a denarius, and he said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, well, Caesar's. And then the memorable statement he gave back, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. We know that there was a a loaded statement there that Jesus said, but it's showing that we have responsibilities to Caesar, to the government, and to God. What is the authority of the state? Now, here's the goal of my brief message. I've only got about 15, well, less than 15 minutes. And uh, what is the goal, then, of of the state? What should it be? And if you're ever on a game show and you're asked this question, I want you to remember who gave you the answer as far as what the Bible says. If you were to walk out of here today and someone asked you, what is the purpose of government? Uh, I want to tell you what the Bible says it is. And, and I hope you'll remember it. That's my goal from, from this sermon. Before we get there, we have to see that the Apostle Paul begins with a clear command of universal ap- application, and that is everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. And he gives the reasons in the opening three verses. And he repeats this three times. He says that the state's authority is derived from God. In verse 1, the second, latter part of verse 1, there's no authority except that which God has established. He goes on in verse 1, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, we need to be careful in how we interpret this because he was not meaning that in his day all the Caligulas and Herods and Neros of the New Testament times and all the Hitlers and Stalins and the Idi Amin's of more recent times, he was not saying that all of these people had been appointed by God and that God was responsible for their behavior and that their authority under no circumstances was to be resisted. That is not what is being stated here in these verses. 
What Paul means is that all human authority is derived from God's authority so that we can say to rulers what God said to Pilate. He said to Pilate, you would have no power or authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. Now, Pilate misused his authority to condemn Jesus, but nevertheless, he used what the authority that he used had been delegated to him by God. That's what's being stressed. Now, Paul would have known that this letter of Romans would have been eventually heard not only by normal citizens, but by those who served in the state, in the government as well. And so he's wanting to let them know that your role is to be steward. You're to manage that role because you have been appointed for that by God himself. Now, it's tempting for us because when we see corruption in, godly, in government and ungodliness, just to give up. And so, having called for submission, Paul now warns against rebellion. And he says that those who rebel, rebels, are setting themselves up against God. That's what he says in verse 2. And therefore, he says it's both right and wise. You're doing yourself a favor to submit. He gives a wisdom for this in verse 3. And that rulers, that statement that rulers give approval to those who do good and punish those who do wrong, we know that's not always true. That's the ideal. Paul knew that well. He himself experienced uh, the benefits of being a Roman. And he experienced the benefits of Roman law. They saved his life a number of times, uh, those laws did. And yet, at the same time, he was condemned under Emperor Nero and put to death for committing no crime. He only did good, and yet he's put to death. So what Paul is stating here is the divine ideal. Just like when we look at Ephesians 5 and we're told as husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we look at that and say, I can never love my wife the way Christ loved the church. That was perfectly. And yet that's the ideal. So the Bible holds up the ideal and we live down here in the reality of the way things are. This is the ideal about government. So what are the limits to this idea of submission? Because this is not a call to unconditional submission to any and every demand of the state. Perhaps Paul wrote this while there was a perfect emperor, you may be thinking. There was a perfect government in Rome. No, there was not. And Nero was the emperor when this letter was written. Now, granted that the authority of rulers is devised from God, what happens if they abuse it? What if they reverse the purpose of government and they begin, begin, rather than commending those who do good and punishing evildoers, they commend evildoers and punish those who do good? Do we still obey? Do we still submit? Well, there are four examples in the Bible. There are many more, but there are four key examples of where we find civil disobedience. The first is in the book of Exodus. You open up the book of Exodus in the opening verses, we meet there, we meet a Pharaoh, the most powerful man in that area of the world at that time, and he's given a command to the Hebrew midwives, to the midwives that they are to put to death or allow to die the, the male children that are born to the Hebrews. And do they follow that? No. They defy Pharaoh. 
That's the first example. The second example is when King Nebuchadnezzar issued a command that everyone was to bow down to a golden image he had had made of himself. They were to worship that image. And these young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to obey. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worship that image. Civil disobedience. Third example. Not long after that example with King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius made a decree that for 30 days nobody should pray to any god or man except to him. What did Daniel do? He did as he had always done. He opened up his windows where he could be seen, and he prayed to the living God. Was he violating Romans 13, though it had not been written yet? No. When the Sanhedrin in Acts chapters 4 and 5 banned Peter from preaching in the name of Jesus, what did Peter say? We must obey God rather than men. Now, in each of those cases, those four cases I just mentioned, these people, the Hebrew midwives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Peter, and the other early apostles, they were subject to direct commands from the governing authorities that violated the clear teachings of Scripture. It wasn't their opinions as far as those who disobeyed. In each of those cases, we have godly people defying wicked, ungodly authority. And they did so at great personal risk. In almost every case, they could have been put to death for their civil disobedience. But in each case, the purpose of their disobedience was not just to defy the government. It was to be able to submit to God, to obey God. And that's a very important distinction. So what is the ministry of the state? Why does the state exist? Verse 4, let's look at verses 4 to 7. He says the state is God's servant to do good. In verse 4, the latter part, the state is an agent of wrath to bring punishment. And verse 6, the authorities are God's servants. It's interesting that the word that the Apostle Paul uses there for those who serve in the state is the same word we have for deacon. They are ministers. They are servants of God. So what is the ministry of the state? Here's the simple answer. They are to commend those who do good, and they are to punish evildoers. That's it. That's the bottom line as far as what the Bible says. said, that's pretty basic. Well, let's start at the beginning. If you're on that game show and they say, what is the purpose of government? What does the Bible say is the purpose of government? Bing! To, to uh, command those who do good and to punish evildoers. That's what it says. That, that's, that's the founding part. That's why there's no government in Genesis 1 and 2. Because there was no sin in the world. Once sin enters the world, then you have God creating authorities on earth to contain the results of sin. So the state's function is to promote the common good and to restrain and punish evil. That's why 1 Peter says governors are sent by him, that is, by the emperor, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Well, what does Paul mean when he says the state bears the sword? Why does he use that metaphor? Well, you have to remember the sword in that day was the lethal weapon. If a Roman centurion entered your house and drew a sword, it was not to wound you. That was the instrument of death. And so it says that the state bears the sword, and we know that it applies to two things. 
capital punishment, that it has the power to put to death wrongdoers if it sees fit. And secondly, it has power to defend its citizens in warfare with lethal force. Now, I'm not giving you my opinion. This is the historical view of Augustine from the 3rd century, 4th century, and on up of what it means that the state bears the sword. They have the power to punish, even to take a life. They have the, they have the power to defend the citizens of that country with lethal force in warfare. And then in verses 6 and 7, he talks about taxes. We can all relate to this. He concludes this section on the state with reference to raising and paying taxes. Taxation in the Roman world was widespread and it was much abused by tax collectors. There were poll taxes. There were land taxes. There were royalties on farm produce. There was duty on imports and exports. Paul regarded this topic as related to the ministry of the state. Verse 6, For because of this, their ministry, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now there have been and there always will be disagreement, debate, and discussion over the proper role and involvement of the state in the life of a nation. How far should it reach? And to a large extent, that is what determines how many taxes we pay or how much is paid in taxes. The reach of the government. We pretty much all can agree there is a minimum level of services. Most people would say, well, the government should, if it's going to bear the power of the sword, then it should have a police department or law enforcement of some sort. It should protect people with things like a fire department. It should have a military to protect us uh, defensively in warfare. But beyond that, and even how much in those, there is just a multitude of opinions and approaches. And yet, Paul knew that. He was certainly not in the ideal state. And so Christians should accept our tax liability. No more than that, but to pay taxes. He then moves from paying taxes to paying what is due to anyone, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor. Now, that is the, I've just done a flyover of the, of the foundational passage in the Bible about the relationship of church and the government. And it can fit in all forms of government, of which there are many. So how do you and I today engage with the culture? I want to just leave you with a few, few thoughts, action points, things to think about. One, do not withdraw. Of course be involved. Of course vote. But the best way is to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, I urge now that prayers be made on behalf of all men for kings and those in authorities that we may be, lead quiet and tranquil lives. And so we may be tempted to say it's, it's beyond prayer, you know, th th throw the bums out. I mean, it's just awful. Nobody has any sense. I mean, you just, you can arrive at any kind of sarcasm and cynicism and, and withdrawal, and yet that's a temptation when we should pray for them. If you're going to criticize, prayer should come before critique. We live in a day when critique Often people will critique and they don't pray. We should pray before we ever, if we even offer, 
criticism, and then it should be in the right context. And you say, why pray? What difference does it make? Well, remember, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, the Christian church was a tiny, tiny, tiny minority in the most powerful polytheistic empire on the planet at that time. And within just 200 years, 200 years after this was written, they had turned the world upside down. So don't give up praying. There are numerous prayer guides you can get on the internet. I downloaded this one yesterday from the Billy Graham Association, How to Pray for Our Leaders. And it gives a variety of scriptures that you can use to pray for our leaders. And you can fill in the blanks as to who the leaders are and and so forth. But you can easily find those um, on the internet. Second, not only don't withdraw, pray. Teach your children and your grandchildren, I would add, why you believe what you believe especially about ethical issues. Don't make your home one where discussion is not allowed. I was raised by two loving parents who were from the generation that children were to be seen and not heard. And often my questions were met with, don't argue. And so I can't say that I learned a whole lot through discussion. You don't want that to be your home. Those of you that have small children or will have children in the future or those that are in a position to influence children or grandchildren and learn to listen. Teach them about why you believe what they believe because you can assume and you should assume that our children and our grandchildren are imbibing a very different worldview from our culture than the convictions that you and I have. And you say, I oversee everything. Uh, you know what? No, you don't. You know, you may think you do, but, but they are imbibing that. Therefore, it's proper. Encourage them to ask questions. Ask them, what's your view about this? And listen. And don't, don't say that's uh, silly or that's crazy or that's, you know, listen. And say, well, don't be offended when your teenager says, look, I don't see any reason two people who love each other can't marry. What's the problem with that? Why are you... On the other side of history, that's the line we hear. Isn't it discriminating? If a pregnancy is unwanted, wouldn't it be better for the baby to be aborted than to be born into a home where they're not wanted? What if the baby has some disability? Wouldn't it be better to abort to abort it? Okay, if, if my friend self, my, my, the guy I know at school, if he self-identifies as a woman or a woman self-identifies as a man, so what? And you and I need to understand apologetics and to be able to answer and to talk and to listen and not bring the conversation to an end. That's what you want to happen. You want to discuss these things and explain, well, here, here's what I think is the authoritative. And I'll, I'll start with, well, uh, I, I have to be careful right here. I could easily get off the subject, but do that. Third, engage in the political process. Some of you have been or will be called to serve in the state sphere, in the government in some capacity. I hope there's some youngster here, and God raises you up, some girl or guy, and you play a very influential part sometime in the future. One of you here in the congregation before Christmas gave me this. It's the uh, 2007 biography written by Jonathan Eichmann about John Newton from disgrace to amazing grace. And if you know anything about the life of John Newton, who had been the captain of a slave ship, he himself was sold into slavery um, 
he experienced what that was like. He uh, then became a pastor. Uh, he wrote Amazing Grace, which was unknown in his, in his day. It did not become really well-known for like 100 years. But he pastored, and he lived in a day when people lived to be about 45 years old. Most men did in England. He lived to be almost 72 years old. But he mentored a young man in the government named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce wanted to go into ministry in the church. And John Newton, as a pastor, strongly discouraged him from doing so. And said, God has placed you where you are. He was, he was elected to serve as a member of parliament. And if you know the story, it was Wilberforce's influence and his perseverance for years and years that brought the African slave trade to an end in Great Britain. And he, uh, Newton didn't quite live to see it. But it was Newton, there you have almost on an individual level, the perfect combination of the church, so to speak, the Christian minister encouraging the state as represented by William Wilberforce. And it was Newton's testimony, first-hand testimony, from what had gone on on slave ships, which were horrific. Don't, I mean, you read this book, and, and he's restrained in the way he writes. But what Newton saw and experienced uh, became key evidence in, in the testimonies that they used when he was arguing against slavery that Wilberforce did. Last of all, realize your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Many of you here have read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. If you haven't, you ought to. It's a, it's a great, encouraging work. But toward the end, he's got a section called A Life That Gets Ready. And he says, setting our minds on heaven is a discipline that needs to be learned. So we should ask ourselves, he says as believers, these questions. Do I daily reflect on my own mortality? Do I daily realize there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I and every person I know will go to one or the other? Do I daily remind myself that this world is not my home and that everything in it will burn, leaving behind only what is eternal? Do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct influence on the world to come? Do I daily realize that my life is being examined by God, the audience of one, and that the only appraisal of my life that will ultimately matter is His? And last of all, do I daily reflect on the fact that my ultimate home will be the new earth, where I will see God and serve Him as a resurrected being in a resurrected human society? where I will overflow with joy and delight in drawing nearer to God by studying Him and His creation, and where I will exercise to God's glory dominion over His creation. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is only through faith in Christ that we come to be part of the church, your universal church. And we thank you that you sent Christ as our Redeemer because of our sin. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins, and he became a substitute, where through trust and faith in him, we can be called your sons and daughters. And we thank you for our nation. We thank you for the freedoms we have enjoyed. We pray that they would continue and that we would be stewards of those to expand your kingdom around the world. We pray that you would raise up leaders who will understand the role of government and that will be bold, uh, even when it doesn't look politically expedient. Uh, but we pray that you would protect those who serve behind the scenes in those capacities as well. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.